0: Hello, it's John Dennis on Tuesday the 12th of January. Today, a new First Minister for Northern Ireland, while Peter Robinson and the DUP buy themselves some time.
1: During this period, I will be carrying out these functions while the First Minister helps deal with his wife's medical problems. I have already discussed handling arrangements with the Deputy First Minister and how work of the Office of First Minister and Deputy First Minister will be carried out. Also today, Britain's
0: leading universities warn they're heading for financial meltdown within the next six months.
2: It is a a really quite terrifying prospect and we're just trying to make sure that decision makers both in the government and in the opposition parties really understand the consequences.
0: A campaign against salt in foodstuffs is launched in New York. Mr. Gay China, an event that highlights changing attitudes in the world's emerging superpower.
1: My name is Sanan Wang. I'm 26 years old and uh, I'm utterly, totally, completely gay.
0: And the verdict on Chris Evans after he takes over from Wogan on Britain's most popular breakfast show.
2: Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk.
0: First our top story, embroiled in a financial scandal involving his wife and her teenage lover, Peter Robinson has temporarily stepped down as Northern Ireland's First Minister. The Democratic Unionist Party leader has asked a party colleague to take over, Enterprise Minister Arlene Foster. She announced her sudden promotion to the Northern Ireland Assembly.
1: Earlier today the First Minister, pursuant to section 16A11 of the Northern Ireland Act 1998, wrote to uh, you, the presiding officer, designating me to carry out the functions of the office of First Minister. During this period I will be carrying out these functions while the First Minister helps deal with his wife's medical problems. I have already discussed handling arrangements with the Deputy First Minister and how work of the Office of First Minister and Deputy First Minister will be carried out in the coming weeks. On behalf of the First Minister, I want to make it clear that he entirely rejects the sole allegation made by the BBC Spotlight programme and will be seeking to clear his name in the days that lie ahead.
0: Well our island correspondent Henry McDonald's in Belfast, Henry... Peter Robinson had the public support of DUP Assembly members, so was his decision to ask Arlene Foster to take over a surprise?
3: I don't think it was a surprise, really. It may have been the people outside of Stormont, but this whole thing was choreographed. You had the the Assembly members and, indeed, the party's European MEP backing them publicly, including Ian Paisley. And then, less than two hours later, you had the announcement from the Speaker of the Parliament Saying that he was temporarily stepping down as first minister and replaced by Arling Foster, I think that was to the initial um, press conference in the hall of the, the Grand Duke's Hall of Stormont Parliament was to create the impression that Peter Robinson wasn't pushed, that he did this himself voluntarily for the, for his family and for the better of the party. So, I think a lot of this was was choreographed uh, and qu- quite carefully crafted. It's probably been planned since the weekend. You
0: say uh, to give the impression that he wasn't pushed. Uh, do, does that mean that we think maybe he was
4: pushed?
3: Well, I don't think he was pushed by the party too much. I think the events and, and the circumstances, the bizarre circumstances over the last few days since the revelations came out about his wife and the allocations that he did not inform Parliament about her £50,000 loan, I think that's what pushed him. I think there's an inevitability to to his stepping down. And the next question is, is he coming back? He has a six-week period to clear his name. But even if he clears his name, does that does that necessarily mean he's coming back as First Minister? I think that's open to question.
0: Also, Henry, Nigel Dodds is the DUP's Deputy Leader. So why was it Arlene Foster that was asked to take over the leadership?
3: Two reasons, I think. And I, I, I've been writing about this in The Guardian over the last few days. Uh, Nigel Dodds is, is very uh, reluctant to become leader for a couple of reasons. For family reasons and also the fact that he could be accused of creating a third DUP dynasty. You had the Paisley's. You have the Robinsons, and you may have had the Dodds, because his wife wife is the party's MEP. So he was reluctant. I've known that for quite some time. He's been reluctant to be leader and first minister. Also, Arlene is a breath of fresh air. She's a very popular politician. The latest opinion poll in a local newspaper put her as one of the most popular ministers. She's a woman. That's a first. We're the first time a political party in Northern Ireland has been... Uh, headed up by a woman and she's the, the prime minister of the country effectively as well so i think it's a clean break really with the old dup past if you like i mean the party remains the same in terms of its policies but as in terms of public image this is perhaps a, a good idea
0: what about Sinn fein will they be able to work with arlene foster
3: John O'Dowd, who's one of Sinn Féin's key spokesmen in in the Assembly and one of the rising stars of the party said last night that they would live with the arrangement for 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 the the intermediate term if you like. I suspect they'll give it a couple of weeks. What they're looking for is a DUP promise to devolve policing and justice powers to transfer powers from Westminster over the police and the judiciary to the Stormont Assembly. Now, if, if after I'd say about two, possibly three weeks maximum, they don't see any indication in the DUP camp that uh, they're going to be willing to devolve those powers, I think you you might see problems in the process. And by six weeks are up and everybody has to re-nominate the ministers, Sinn Féin may not necessarily re-nominate Martin McGuinness as Deputy First Minister, which if they did that would bring the whole thing crashing down. So it's still a high wire act that we're on at the minute
0: and what about peter robinson and his wife iris is the uh, press attention now going to move away from them
3: well iris robinson is in a secure unit uh, uh being given psychiatric treatment and i would imagine that she'll be given some privacy i don't know and peter robinson will obviously i think go to the back benches he will be doing backroom negotiations with Sinn Féin. and he's taking over the negotiations in terms of the policing and justice de- uh debate and i think You know, there's no better person to do it because behind it all, he is actually quite a skilled negotiator. What I would say is that this is worth watching. This this six-week period not only buys Peter Robinson some time to clear his name, it buys the DUP time. And I think in that time, what they're going to do is this. They're going to be having private polling. They're going to be getting grassroots reaction from their party and indeed from the Unionist electorate to see if the Robinson scandal has left lasting electoral damage or potential damage. And I I would predict that if the the results come back, if the feedback is negative, that the Robinson effect is no longer positive but could lose them votes, you might see Peter Robinson spending more time with his family.
0: Henry MacDonald. Well, voters in Peter Robinson's constituency told The Guardian's Esther Adley what they think about the scandal.
1: Like I said, all I know is from what I've seen on Facebook, like all the groups. Mm-hmm. Um, I just went on one day and all these people had joined these groups and Iris Robinson seduced me and um, you know that song Mrs Robinson to number one? Just things like that and then I just googled it and read a wee bit about it and that was it. And What do you think of a 59 year old woman having an affair with a 19 year old? It's a bit sick <laughs> considering I'm 19 and I wouldn't go with a 59 like, year old man. That would be a bit disgusting. Peter Robinson's the MP here. Do you think, I don't know whether you vote or whether he's somebody you support, but it would it make you more or less likely to vote for him? I don't somebody has been
3: full for anyone.
2: I don't even vote for anyone. I don't even know who he is. I've only seen him because of this, on the news. That's it.
1: What about you? What do you think?
2: I do vote for him. Do you? Yeah. <laughs>
1: and do you think it would make any difference to how you're going to vote? No. No. Why not? It's not his fault his wife had an affair,
2: you know. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't think it's, it shouldn't reflect badly on him at all. I think she has ruined him. He should stay on. He should get rid of her. That's it. (laughs) How do you feel about it all? I just think it was a silly mistake she made. You know, went to help somebody and got involved, and I just think it was a silly mistake she made. But, you know, as a Christian, and her being a Christian, what can you say? It's just one of those things that she's, she's done, you know. And her husband, unfortunately, he's going to pay the price for it.
0: Esther Adley reporting, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website.
2: I'm Ros Taylor, Deputy
3: Editor of Comment Is Free, and we have a couple of very exciting pieces coming up today. One of them is by Zoe Margolis, author of the infamous sex blog Girl With A One Track Mind, and she is taking on criticism by an academic and the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, who ask whether blogs like hers are actually making it difficult for the rest of us to maintain our own privacy online. Another piece we've got coming up is by Chris Amos. Chris is probably the person who's been following the Chilcot inquiry most closely and has a very good idea of what exactly Alistair Campbell did or didn't do to the document assessing the risk that Iraq posed before the Iraq war. So, both those coming up today on guardian.co.uk/slash comment is free.
4: Good morning, friends, and thanks for tuning in to the 11th of January Chris Evans has made his
0: debut taking over from Terry Wogan on BBC Radio 2's Breakfast Show. It's Britain's most listened-to radio programme. It gets even more listeners than Guardian Daily. So how did Evans and his much-admired newsreader Moira Stewart do? John Plunkett was listening closely for a live blog on Media Guardian.
5: Well, I think it was a solid but not really spectacular start for Evans. There were no uh, sort of big mistakes. It would have been relief probably just to get through it. But uh, no great radio that really sticks in the mind, I don't think.
0: Uh, the, the sort of most memorable moment was this uh, mystery guest. Tell us about that.
5: Uh, yes, it's the chap who, uh, uh, I understand, holds the uh, the world record for, uh, for blowing up. And when I say blowing up, actually exploding a, a hot water bottle just by blowing into it. Um, he did it on Blue Peter um, a while back, and he was the Chris Evans' first mystery guest. But I think uh, he remained a uh, mystery even uh, after Evans had chatted to him for three minutes. He was, he was to say he was full of beans was an understatement, and uh, I think it would be good to be a, a fly on the wall of the uh, the after show. Um, kind of production meeting uh, just to see what uh, Evans thought of um, him as being the, the first choice for that slot.
4: Oh, crazy, I, crazy! My can, wife won't have me sectioned! I, c- I can feel the uh, energy coming down the telephone. and uh, you, you are, this is for real, isn't it?
1: This is for real, this is no muggle. They try and all the, even Arnold Schwarzenegger, Franco Colombo, the world weightlifters, they all try to do what I do,
4: but they can't do it. All right, uh, so to so tell us about your workout then. Obviously, uh, it, cr- it creates a lot of energy.
5: Uh, I think we might see someone a bit... Um, uh, how we say uh, less uh, less risky possibly now um, on today's show
0: i mean we, we all remember chris evans going spectacularly off the rails in the 1990s Um i guess he'll be happy not to have gone spectacularly off the rails quite so soon this time anyway
5: Yes apparently he didn't sleep at all the night before his first show and uh, he, he spent the night watching Bruno the uh, the Sasha Baron Cohen film I don't know if that's in radio textbooks as uh, as uh, ideal watching for preparation for a for a national breakfast show but it's the first hopefully of, of many and I think uh, I think we'll see him ease into it It took him a while to get used to the drive time slot when he first uh, when he when he first arrived on radio 2 so uh, the problem with with his first show I thought probably was that it sounded a bit like his drive time show just transferred to breakfast so he really makes, needs to uh, to, to fine tune it a bit and tailor it to a breakfast audience but having worked at Radio 1 for all those years and at Virgin Radio that shouldn't be a problem
0: Chris Evans very different kind of broadcaster from Terry Wogan who's done that breakfast show on Radio 2 for 27 years what will Wogan listeners make of the new man
5: I've got to say I think it will be a bit of a shock to them the BBC's done everything they could to ease the transition for instance by hiring someone like Moira to kind of hold their hand as we go from as you say 27 years of Wogan to, to the new boy on the block but I, I think in, in tone and sound it was, Evan's new show was certainly slightly closer to the kind of breakfast show you get on commercial radio or, or dare I say, it, Chris Molles and Radio 1, rather than what we were used to uh, with Wogan. So um, it'll be a, a very interesting, to say the least, transition. And He might well hang on to most of the eight million listeners that he inherited from Terry Wogan, but I think uh, they, they could well be a, a, a very different audience. Some will go, new ones will arrive, but I think we'll see quite a lot of churn, to use that phrase.
0: It's taken more than 800 years to create one of the world's greatest education systems and it looks like it'll take just six months to bring it to its knees. So begins an opinion piece in today's Guardian that sounds a dire warning about the effect of government spending cuts on Britain's higher education system. The co-author is Dr Wendy Pyatt, Director General of the Russell Group of Britain's top universities, which includes Oxford and Cambridge.
2: The article is a dire warning about what seems to be a very bleak future. I mean, we don't know the exact details. We don't know, as I've put in the article, where the axe is going to fall exactly because it could be taken to some extent from student support. We've got a very diverse sector with, on one end of the spectrum, very research-intensive universities and on the other end, teaching-led institutions. But irrespective of exactly who will bear most of the pain, all universities are really going to suffer to some extent. Um, everyone's affected by capital investment. And for this first year, it's very clear that we are going to have to cut back on any kind of capital investment. For the next few years, we're not exactly sure if research will be hit, or teaching or capital spend or student support. But wherever the axe falls, it is a a really quite terrifying prospect and we're just trying to make sure that decision makers both in the government and in the opposition parties really understand the consequences
0: a lot of people listening to this who aren't involved in higher education may be thinking, well, you know, there's got to be some public um, sector cuts, we've got to reduce the national debt, higher education is going to have to suffer along with everyone else. But you've said in this article in Today's Guardian that you know, you've gone as far as to say this is a defining moment in our country's history.
2: Yes, and that's largely because it is such a great shame. The government has previously tried to invest a bit more in higher education, and particularly in our research base. Um, people like David Sainsbury have been real champions in the past for the importance of particularly science research, but research more generally, and after the really savage cuts in the 80s, um, we did manage to at least repair some of the damage of that under investment, but now it seems we, we are sliding backwards very quickly. We haven't got to a position where we're just getting our head above the water, really punching above our weight in terms of our uh, ability to cope internationally. I mean, the UK is recognized as a country that really does much better than it should when you look at the investment that is made into higher education. And so now we're saying we just don't see how with these, the size of these cuts, the magnitude of, of these budget reductions, how we are really going to retain that position because they're just so huge.
0: Wendy Pyatt, my name's John Dennis, you're listening to Guardian Daily. In China, gay sex was illegal until 1997 and homosexuality was classed as an illness until 2001, but now China's first gay pageant is taking place. Tanya Brannigan reports on Mr Gay China, a contest whose winner gets the chance to go to Norway to compete for the title of Worldwide Mr Gay.
1: My name is Simon Wang. I'm 26 years old. I'm an art dealer, i curator, contemporary, and uh, I'm utterly, totally, completely gay.
2: Participants and organisers hope the contest will make people rethink the stereotypes.
1: They have this uh, misled... Uh, perception of homosexuals, uh, of them as being either sissy or uh, disease-related.
2: Perhaps that's not surprising. Even ten years ago, homosexuality was classed as a mental illness.
1: So, But now it's so different. I mean, you can see people holding hands. You can, you can go to many gay parties and you can meet people from all over the world. Um, they have gay pride. Last year they had the first one.
2: But there is no legal protection against discrimination and the importance of family here creates extra pressure.
5: In
0: China, there are a lot of gay people who hide their identity because of their jobs and family. Maybe their friends and relatives don't know their real identity. So throughout their lives, they feel very depressed.
3: In Chinese philosophy, we say um, there are three different kinds of wrongful behavior to uh, to not to devote to your parents and the first one would be uh, not to have offspring for the family don't
1: get evil the even start
2: yet. Mr. Gay China aims to increase the confidence of gay men and help others to understand them If you don't do it now it could
1: be late I mean for many people it it'd be too much for for them to live in a lie you know for their whole lives so I think it's very important uh, to do it. Tanya Branigan
0: reporting, and you can watch her film about Mr Gay China at guardian.co.uk slash video. Michael Bloomberg, Mayor of New York, has already told restaurants to cut trans fats from their food and put calorie counts on their menu. Now he wants food companies and restaurant chains to cut the levels of salt in their products. Ed Pilkington's in New York with
4: the details. Well, they've announced today that they are introducing a new health drive to try and reduce the city's salt intake by about a quarter over five years. Now, you'll know that this is the sort of latest in the string of attempts by Mayor Bloomberg to improve the health of the city. He's gone for calories. He's made uh, places like Starbucks put all the calories of their of their products on the boards in any outlet here he's gone for trans fats in food he sort of banned it in restaurants in New York and they've also obviously were one of the first to to make New York a smoke free city so this is the latest uh, Uh, Drive. Although, unlike previous efforts in those things that I mentioned, this one is fully voluntary. So they're asking companies that make fast food and restaurant owners to reduce their salt use by about a quarter, but purely voluntarily. Do we know whether there'll be many takers for this initiative? It's sort of a little unclear at the moment. A, a few fairly big companies have come out and saying they think it's a great idea and are sort of embracing it. They obviously see some sort of commercial advantage in being seen to be you know, good employers and good food manufacturers. But others, such as Campbell's Soup, uh, that makes Campbell Soup, are a little bit iffy about it. It's going It's quite difficult to reduce salt in the sense that many consumers are used to the taste of salt. Um, it sort of makes food taste more vibrant. And also, of course, it makes food last longer if you can it. So it's slightly tricky to reduce salt without incurring costs because the The replacement chemicals you can use to replace sodium are all more expensive than salt, which is quite an inexpensive chemical to to use in manufacturing. So there are uh, difficulties involved, but people do think this could be quite a major thing here because most manufacturers will not have the capacity to just make a separate line of products just for New York. So it's going to affect the entire national food production in America if companies do go for it. And they say that here that, that people are consuming about twice as much salt as they should do. So it is quite a major uh, health problem for Americans. Yeah, I mean, what effect will it have on public health potentially? Well, again, slightly disputed. Some people say it's not di- clear directly the impact of salt on health. Others say that, you know, we know enough now to to be more careful than we are, which is that too much salt puts up the uh, blood pressure, and that in turn can cause strokes and heart disease. So they say, you know, it, uh, at the levels that uh, Americans are consuming it, this is unhealthy and it's dangerous. Mm. The New York itself, Mayor Bloomberg, goes further and claims that w- if these target, voluntary targets are met that several thousand people's lives will be spared each year in New York. And nationally, that could be as much as 800,000 people, which is quite a bold claim because, as I say, that the, the research is not crystal clear in terms of a direct connection between salt and, and uh, coronary death. But they're saying they could actually save hundreds of thousands of lives. Ed Pilkington, Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe with the producers of
0: today's edition of Guardian Daily. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening.